Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. On today's show, we'll hear about the legislature's decision not to raise the wind tax. And we'll discuss the debate over school funding cuts. I would anticipate that school districts will continue to push back, maybe even in the form of litigation. We'll hear from a woman who, in spite of previous failure, is determined to win a seat in Wyoming's House of Representatives. And how archaeologists are challenging old ideas that prehistoric peoples couldn't live year-round above Timberline. It appears that people are coming up here to see the glaciers, you know, see where the water comes from, where does the water spirit originate. We'll also hear about an initiative to bring healing to criminals and their victims, those conversations and more, coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming's wind producers breathed a sigh of relief yesterday when the legislature's Joint Revenue Committee voted down a bill that would have increased the tax on wind energy production. Wyoming Public Radio's energy reporter Stephanie Joyce was at the committee's meeting, and she joins us now to talk about the day's twists and turns. Well, Stephanie, I think maybe the place to start was you had a whole bunch of legislators who had supported this legislation, and they changed their minds after five hours of public testimony. What happened? Yeah, it was pretty surprising. Um, You know, I didn't get a chance to catch up with the legislators who did change their minds after the meeting to find out exactly what it was in the five hours of testimony that swayed them. Um, But in those full five hours, uh, not a single person spoke in favor of the bill, which of course would have increased the tax on wind energy. And the breadth of the groups opposed the bill was pretty staggering. Uh, The committee Heard testimony, of course, from wind developers and uh, economic development folks, but, you know, also from ranchers, including the Stock Growers Association, um, the Contractors Association, and just a whole slew of local government officials from the counties and municipalities where near wind development. So why did they oppose it? What was their concern? Yeah, so obviously this bill would have increased the tax on wind energy generation. Wyoming currently has a dollar per megawatt hour wind production tax, and that's the only tax on wind energy generation in the nation. Um, and so the basic theme that you know everybody testified to was that raising the tax would discourage wind development in Wyoming. Wyoming hasn't seen any new wind farms built since 2010 when that wind production tax passed. Um, And, you know, I think it's worth saying that, you know, just about everybody at the meeting agreed that it wasn't just that tax that was responsible for the drop-off in wind energy development. You know, right around then, Wyoming also maxed out its transmission capacity, so it basically ran out of power lines to carry new wind power. Um, But, you know, most people said the possibility of a tax increase would likely chase off development because it just would introduce a lot of uncertainty into these projects. You know, when people are investing billions of dollars, they want some certainty about their tax regime. And, you know, we also heard a lot at the meeting about how Wyoming, you know, while Wyoming has amazing natural resources and it has amazing wind resources, it doesn't have a monopoly on the wind. You know, there are other states in the Western grid that also have great wind resources. As you reported, several wind developers said before the meeting they were waiting on the outcome before moving forward with their projects. What do you think? Will those projects proceed? Yeah, so the largest project, the one that probably most people have heard about, um, is the project from the Power Company of Wyoming, their Choke Cherry Sierra Madre project. 
that would be the largest onshore wind farm in North America if it's built. It's being proposed for Carbon County. That project actually started building some roads earlier this month, but um, they had said that you know whether that construction would continue would be influenced by the committee's decision. And I did have the chance to speak to a company representative after the meeting, um, and she said that you know there are some other things that need to fall into place before they continue construction, like final federal permits, um, before they can actually start putting up turbines. Um, but she said the decision that the committee made definitely you know helped create some certainty for the project. Um, and you know one of the things that I I think just really surprised a lot of people in the room was how many wind projects are under development in Wyoming. A lot of these projects hadn't previously been publicized. Some of them are almost as large as that Choke Cherry project. And this proposed tax increase really brought those wind developers out of the woodwork. So um, we learned yesterday that there are at least half a dozen substantial wind energy projects in the works in Wyoming. So I think we can expect to see more development in the next five years than we have in the last five years. Stephanie Joyce is Wyoming Public Radio's energy reporter. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. We will now be joined by University of Wyoming President Lori Nichols. This week, University of Wyoming officials proposed cutting 16 academic programs in order to meet a $15 million budget cut required for the next fiscal year. President Nichols notes that they are also looking at consolidating some programs. And so in total, she says they're actually looking at 8 to 10 program eliminations. In past years, when the University of Wyoming has made budget cuts, it's tried to avoid eliminating academic programs. But Nichols has stood by her position that academic cuts must be considered. This is a budget cut or a budget reduction where we do need to look a little bit more seriously at academic programs and thus at faculty than we did last go round. I mean, I think you know that we've shared the numbers and the heavy the heavy cuts last last time for this FY17 did come from the staff. And we can't go back and hit the staff as heavy as we did this time. Let me ask you this. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're thinking about this as you go through this process, but it seems like morale might be dipping quite a bit on campus. Mm -hmm. And for those out in the state, they probably don't know to what extent, but it, but it seems to be very high. How worried are you about that? And, and is there anything you, you might be doing about that? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I have, you know, yes, morale is of concern. I mean, I think it is any time that you get into these kinds of situations where you have to cut the budget. I mean, I've done this a number of times at other institutions. I can tell you morale's never high when you cut a budget. At least if it is, I've never experienced that myself. So, you know, budget cuts do impact people's thoughts about the university. Morale is how you feel about a university, and it does impact that. Um, but having said that, I have to say, as I'm out about campus talking to people, morale's not as low here as, I, as as it could be, and it's not as low as I've seen it at other universities when we cut budgets. So I guess I'm not of the opinion that it's terribly low. I do think people are concerned, and there's a lot of good questions being asked, and thus our attempt to put together, I mean, right now I think shared governance is at its best because we have all kinds of faculty groups working on this right now and we're sharing information about it all the time. So I think to some extent morale stays a little higher just because we're really making every effort to involve faculty and staff in this. Still, are you worried that there's a backlash and you lose people because of all this? We'll probably lose a few people because of this. I mean, there's probably no question about that. When, when budgets are in question, people worry about their programs and if there's options for them to to go elsewhere, and it's a good option, they may exercise that right. And, you know, we may try to retain them, but at the end of the day, it's an individual's decision what they do. So, you know, we will work to try to retain people, but I, I would suspect that a few people will go. We've talked about this many times, and, and it's starting to look like it, you're going to get a proposal here very soon from the Rob Godby's committee where they've yeah. looked at revenue. Looking at some fee increases, and some might be substantial for some of the higher cost programs on the campus. I am also aware you've gotten a little pushback from maybe some elected officials in this state. Mm -hmm. 
Are you going to not worry about that and, and just go forward and do what's best for the university, or, or what do you think? Um, I, I would expect what you'll see in, the, in this next year, our proposal for fall of 17, is a modest increase on tuition, but not significant, because I think that's where you get more of the pushback is on the tuition side of it. So uh, do we need to keep increasing tuition? Yes, I think we do a bit, but will, will we see a huge spike? I don't think so. Um, however, I will be proposing a program fee. And this program fee will be to address high-cost programs where simply the um, cost to deliver the program outweighs many other programs on campus. And we will be asking students who take those courses in those programs to pay a program fee on top of tuition to help us deliver high-quality programs to help us keep accreditation for those programs and to make sure that students are really getting a great education when they pursue those majors. So you will see that proposal coming to the board. If you were to do the fee proposal that that you're anticipating will be recommended to you, we're looking about three or four million more a year. Does that sound right? Probably a little higher than that. Yeah. They're working on it right now, and I don't have the final, but I think it's probably going to be closer to $5 million. You also got some maybe not so great news. I mean, we're, we're all waiting for the consensus revenue estimating group report as the bu- governor is doing the budget, but there was an announcement a couple of weeks ago that there could possibly be some more cuts proposed. Another cut would be, that'd be tough. It'd be tough, and, and it will have an even more significant impact than the first cut has had. Because as you well know, the first cut, you there, there typically is some low-hanging fruit that you can try to take advantage of. And quite honestly, I've tried to take advantage of it in this cut. Um, but the next one, that low-hanging fruit is gone. And so now you really get into more the meat of, of, of you know, your core mission and the really essential things that you do as a university. And that worries me a lot. So, um, you know, do I think it may be coming? I don't know. I mean, I'm yes, I'm trying to talk to people and get a feel if we're going to be handed another budget cut. People are hedging. I'm not getting any clear message from anyone at this point in time. They're saying it may be coming, but nobody seems to have a number and nobody seems to know for sure. So uh, I'm trying to visit with people as I can to see what, what we may be looking at, but I've got no clear indication yet at this point. You've been accepting. Would you start pushing back? I'd start pushing back more. Yeah. This first go-round, um, I mean, clearly the economy's down. There's no question about it. And the revenue just wasn't there. And all state agencies are taking a budget cut. So, And all the community colleges are working through this as well. And, you know, if the money's not there, the money's not there. We need to be a team player here too. But I do think in the next go-round, the state needs to do what they're – I mean, the state has asked me to prioritize on this campus. And in some ways, the state's going to have to do the same thing. One last thing for you, you just started the strategic planning process uh, with something you were really looking forward to getting started. What what might that mean for the campus? Well, it'll well, one thing it will mean for sure is that we will have a roadmap that will take us out into the next five years, and it will help us see what our priorities are and what our goals are. Uh, and we're lacking that right now, as you well, I think probably most people know that the last strategic plan sunset somewhere around two to three years ago, and there's been no roadmap for the university for at least a couple of years. And I'm not a president who feels I can lead this university without a strategic plan. I just think that it is a way to communicate to the campus and beyond what it is that we're trying to accomplish here in the next five years, what our goals are, what how we will measure our progress. Thus, we will have a set of metrics that we will be measuring ourselves again. And I think it's just a beautiful communication tool that you can take across the state, you can take to donors, you can take to stakeholders, and you could say, this is where the university is heading. Lori Nichols, always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for stopping by. You're welcome. Thank you. Next on the show, we'll talk about education funding and a unique proposal to heal both criminals and their victims. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Earlier this year, the Wyoming legislature cut $36 million from money they provide to school districts. 
Since that time, districts have been trying to get that money back and convince lawmakers that additional cuts would hurt their ability to adequately teach students. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that it all centers on the state constitution. Let's give you a quick history lesson. Many years ago, the state lost a lawsuit that changed the way schools are funded. Lawmakers had to develop a school funding model that is designed to give school districts enough money to pay for what is called the basket of goods and services. This includes a list of knowledge and skills that students are expected to learn, as well as some graduation requirements. Wyoming's Constitution says education is a fundamental right, something folks like Campbell County Superintendent Boyd Brown likes to remind lawmakers. We've gone through the process of deciding what's in the basket of goods, and they have had consultants come in and say what it's going to cost for those ba- for, the, for that basket of goods. And so I think that's what we're looking at trying to preserve. Otherwise, we're going to have to cut services, and they're going to have to tell us what services we would have to cut there. During a recent meeting of the legislature's Joint Education Committee, Brown pointed out that in his town, jobs are being cut and families are leaving. His district has already seen a loss of roughly 450 students. Loss of enrollment and a decline in the local economy will hurt his district's bottom line. Looking at where we're at, we're thinking um, three years down the road, we may have a loss of about $5 million. Campbell County has reserves and still will have a solid tax base, but Brown says that won't be the case everywhere. For instance, Matizzi Superintendent Jay Curtis says smaller districts like his will be more impacted than the bigger ones. If we actually have to reduce people, we're reducing programs. We do not have more than one person doing any one program. So any type of reduction means that our students get fewer classes, less opportunity. But the fact is, while there is a lot of hand-wringing, when you look at the numbers, the cut really isn't that bad. Despite the reduction, most districts in the state are either going to get more money than last year or have plenty of reserves to help them overcome this reduction. State Senator Dan Dockstader is from Afton. I think we'll be just fine even with the cuts. It'll be okay. Dockstader points out that during the good times, the state has given districts much more than was required. Wyoming still ranks in the top 16 in teacher salaries, and Doc Stater says in his community they have no problem replacing teachers. He says it's fair to ask K-12 education to help meet the state's revenue shortfall. The state is running on less money than it ever has before. The projection is not good. Things have got to change. But Sublet County Representative Albert Summers says they have to be cautious. Summers notes that the courts have required lawmakers to spend a specific amount on education. And if they go below that, there could be problems. So we can't cut much before we're below the constitutional mandate. So the thought that we can go out and and really carve into this thing, we can't do it or we're not going to meet the constitutional muster. State Superintendent Jillian Balo has a similar warning. I would anticipate that school districts will continue to push back, maybe even in the form of litigation. Um, Ultimately, that may change the way that we do business. It's worth noting that school districts have been very successful when they've sued the state over funding issues. So, Balo says the real challenge for legislators will be in finding a way to pay for education during a fiscal downturn. You know, it's no secret that we're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars in in a reduction to the school foundation account, and that will be felt very deep. Oh, and there's another problem. Legislators are also responsible for the building and upkeep of schools. The coal money that used to pay for that has gone away. House Minority Leader Mary Throne says lawmakers, though, should not overreact. I think we need to not do anything abruptly. Throne says she thinks they have the ability to study a variety of revenue options because enrollment declines and reserve funding will buy them time in the short term. Solutions could range from slightly tweaking the school funding model to raising taxes. But Throne says further education cuts are a bad idea because education helps economic development. If we have bad schools, no one is going to want to move here and start businesses here. Good schools will make us attractive in spite of our um, economic downturn. This debate will not be ending anytime soon. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck.
Restorative justice programs are on the rise around the country, facilitating meetings between victims, offenders, and community members in order to repair some of the harm caused by crime. Now, a group of volunteers in Casper wants to incorporate the method into the state's legal system. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullins spoke with Jen Miner, the chairwoman of the newly formed Natrona County Restorative Justice Board. Restorative justice really is a a philosophy or a frame of mind that is used to approach crime and conflict. Um, It takes the view of punishment and um, retribution and makes a shift um, to an approach of restoration. Um, It views crime and conflict as a violation of relationships, not necessarily just a law broken. Um, So instead of asking, you know, what rule or law has been broken, who did it, or how should that person be punished, Um, A restorative approach instead seeks to answer what happened, who was affected, and how, and then what what can be done to make things right. So how does it benefit both the victim and the wrongdoer? Well, for the victim, it it gives them, I believe, empowerment. It gives them the voice to identify the harms that were done, and it allows them to participate in a restorative process. And for the offender, it really creates opportunities for meaningful personal accountability. Um, And then they are a part of that process, typically, of identifying what can they do to make things as right as possible. What kind of cases can benefit from these practices? There's really uh, no one population that restorative justice is best for. Because restorative approaches can be used in so many situations, and I should say restorative principles, the the values behind it. Um, It can be used in civil matters. It can be used, like, with diversion cases all the way on up to violent offenses. Um, With any of these, there's always an opportunity um, for those most affected to seek healing and reparation. I, I think with any victim who is seeking a restorative process to have that safe opportunity to ask their offender certain questions that only the offender can ever answer. It's things that the court can't answer or her attorney. Um, I, I think if a victim is truly wanting that, it's available to them. And are there opponents? Are there skeptics of restorative justice? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, there are opponents. Um, though. I think for those that don't support restorative justice, it's simply an issue of having misconceptions of what RJ is is all about and and not having experienced it. And actually, one of our keynote speakers for the conference has presented on on that very topic. Um, And he's talked about his own experience of skepticism and then eventually how he came to embrace restorative justice um, for his own courtroom. Could you tell me more about this upcoming conference? The conference is set for March, um, this coming spring, and the conference really is twofold, um, the purpose behind it. One, we want to provide information, um, education, so to speak. The other thing that the conference will be doing is providing keynote speakers and breakout sessions that will touch on these different areas, like law enforcement, legislation, victim services, um, how to use restorative justice uh, in a school setting, but then also how volunteers can be involved because they are a part of the process. They represent the community and the harm because, you know, anytime a crime occurs, it vibrates out into the community. And so they have a stake in the process as well. To to hear the stories of people who have gone through a restorative process, it is just incredibly powerful. And we do plan to have some people present for the conference to share their stories of you know, their, their own personal experience um, of having been a victim of a crime and what they were able to get out of their restorative process and the, the benefit that it can have for them. Well, thank you again, Jen, for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. That was Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen speaking with Jen Miner, the chairwoman of the recently formed Natrona County Restorative Justice Board. A restorative justice symposium will take place March 16th and 17th in Casper. After our break, two news stories in our series on women legislators and a chat with the German ambassador. This is Open Spaces. 
Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. There aren't many women serving in Utah's legislature, but a new law this election year gives hopeful political candidates a new way to get on their party's primary ballot. As part of the series Women Run the West, which explores the role of women in Western politics, Reporter Jennifer Pemberton looked into whether or not the new alternative to Utah's caucus convention system might help more women get elected. There are currently 10 women serving in the Utah House of Representatives and six in the state Senate. Together, they make up 15 percent of the 104 elected state legislators. This puts Utah in the bottom 10 states for percentage of women represented in state legislature. There are a lot of reasons for the disparity between men and women serving as elected state officials, but according to Katie Ziegler with the National Convention of State Legislatures, none of them has to do with electability. There's not bias at the ballot box, and um, you just have to take a step back and realize that when you look at the numbers, women aren't running for state legislative offices um, in the numbers that would increase the numbers of women elected to Put it more simply, women aren't running, and so they're not getting elected. When women run, women win. Except when they don't, which we'll get to in a moment. Maybe it's not obvious why we need more women in office, but we live in a representative democracy, and that means, in theory, that our legislative bodies should look like our population. In Utah, our population is 49.7% female, but our legislature is only 15% female, which isn't very representative. Ziegler says that women running for state legislatures can lead to more women in office all the way up the chain. Looking nationally and at higher office, uh, such as Congress, um, currently about 50 percent almost of members of Congress previously served in state legislatures. And so you think about political candidates as existing in a pipeline, and there's this pool of people that maybe someday will make a run for Congress, whether it's the House or the U.S. Senate, and there aren't a lot of women in that pool. One way to add women to that pool is by actively recruiting women to run. Women don't tend to be self-starters as far as political candidacy goes. It, It takes recruiting a woman. It takes somebody asking her, you should do it, you should throw your hat in the ring, Women that I work with have told me over over and over, um, someone asked me four times before I said yes. In Utah, that push for more women to run in the first place comes from a group called Real Women Run. The nonpartisan organization holds trainings for potential female candidates on how to manage a campaign, how to fundraise, how to work with the media, even hands-on stuff like how to actually file for candidacy. Pleasant Grove resident Zanny Haney showed up to one of these trainings back in January. By the end of the all-day workshop, she decided she was going to run as a Republican for a seat in the Utah House of Representatives. We have one demographic, basically, that's making all of our state laws. We need more women on the Capitol Hill. We only have 13 percent currently in the House of Representatives, and I think we need to encourage more women to run. The incumbent in Haney's district is Republican Representative Brian Green, and in January, no one was signed up to run against him. I knew that no one else was going to step up to the game, and I had done my research and was starting to be backed by a lot of local people, and people just kind of rallied behind me, and they wanted another option. So for me, that was the decision, and someone needed to step up. I caught up with Haney at the Utah County GOP convention in April, where the delegates had just voted in her race. The voting went okay. I landed at 33% approval. She needed 40% to move on to a primary. And last election, she wouldn't have had enough to stay in the race. But a new state law passed in 2014 gives candidates two routes to getting elected. The old caucus and convention route and a new signature gathering route that can get candidates directly onto their party's primary ballot. You can even do both. So if you're a first-time candidate like Haney, running against an incumbent like Representative Green, you can try your best to get delegates to vote for you at the convention, and you can gather voter signatures as a backup. So I started gathering signatures in about February, and I knocked about 800 doors, and uh, that was an interesting experience in the middle of February, but it was a good experience. 
How many signatures did you need? I needed 1,000 and I had to get about 1,800 because only 40% were verifiable. So Haney forced a primary, so to speak, and prepared to face her opponent. And then her own party started actively campaigning against her. The Utah GOP was opposed to the new law allowing signature gathering from the beginning, and even going so far as to sue the state to overturn it. The Utah County GOP financially supported and endorsed Representative Green as the traditional nominee from the convention and refused to recognize candidates like Haney, who gathered signatures to get on the ballot. In June, she lost the primary by fewer than 200 votes. There's no Democratic candidate for the district, so Representative Brian Green will hold the seat for another term. It's too early to tell how much of an impact the signature-gathering option will have on Utah elections, especially when it comes to the representation of women. Utah is only one of seven states that uses the caucus convention primary system, and with this new alternative path to getting elected and all the resistance toward it from the Utah Republican Party, The 2016 election is a real experiment in what representative democracy looks like. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Jennifer Pemberton. To get on a primary ballot in Wyoming only takes a few things, meeting age and residency requirements, signing your name, and 200 bucks. But when it comes to actually running a campaign, there's a whole new set of challenges. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard has the story of one woman who took on the odds of campaigning herself. Julie McAllister is not shy. Hi, how are you? I'm Julie. Nice to meet you. Julie. Rich Keeley. Nice Nice to meet meet you. It's a good thing she isn't shy, too, because Julie McAllister is running for office, the Wyoming State House seat in House District 47. I'm out with her on a hot and sunny July day in Saratoga, where she was campaigning at an art show. She approached potential voters, chatting about everything from art. That is absolutely one of the most beautiful pieces of bronze I've ever seen in my life. To why she's qualified to serve. And I really hope to have the opportunity to show my voters that it's something that I will give my entire heart and mind to. After schmoozing with the attendees and buying a few art prints, McAllister retreated to her truck in the parking lot, which she had been using as a makeshift campaign headquarters, driving all over southern Wyoming to knock on doors and get her name out there. She said she had always been interested in politics and public service. But honestly had never imagined myself as a candidate or as a, or as a rep until around 2012-2013, after a lot of soul-searching and thought. It was time to put my money where my mouth was and put myself in the situation to affect change positively and to do the hard work, commit to it 103,000%. The race is tough for McAllister. She's young for politics at 36, and like many women, she has a lot to juggle. She's a full-time caregiver for her husband, who was paralyzed in a work accident. And she's facing off against incumbent representative Jerry Paxton. He already beat her once in 2014. But all that doesn't deter her. The mistakes I made in 2014, I've learned from now in 2016, and I'm building on those, so I'm actually more confident. The only thing I'm afraid of is the fact I care. This is is important, high value, high risk for me, not because I'm facing an incumbent, not because I'm a woman. Um, Those reasons don't scare me. What scares me is because I care so much. Many of the potential challenges McAllister faces are typical for female candidates, family obligations, limited manpower and finances, and she's running against a male incumbent. These reasons have repeatedly been cited in studies by American University and the Brookings Institution as reasons more women don't run for office in the first place. But growing a support system can be done. It just takes time. It is a hurdle. It's not a barrier. Uh, Figure out how to get over it. That's Gail Geringer, a campaign manager in Wyoming. She's run campaigns for people like Wyoming Governor Matt Mead and former U.S. House Representative Barbara Cuban. Geringer says getting your feet wet in politics may mean taking a few hits at first. Someone who's a newcomer and doesn't know a lot of people might not be successful the first time. But a lot of people run several times and then are successful. Geringer says these candidates gain support as they go along for a couple of reasons. One, their name ID grows each time they run. But two, they're, they're bringing in people from everywhere. And they learn what they did wrong the first time and solve those problems so that 
they can be successful. Currently, only 13% of the state's legislators are women, the lowest percentage in the country. The good news is that McAllister is one of 40 women who ran in the state's legislative primaries, more than in other recent elections. But actually, getting elected is tough. McAllister lost in the primary again this year, but she isn't too down. I did pretty darn well. If you look at the races that were similar to mine, where um, I'm challenging an incumbent who's in the same party as me. McAllister did gain ground. She went from around 31 percent of the vote in 2014 to nearly 40 percent this year. I had one of the largest increases in percentage at a 7 percent increase. Another 7, and I could take it. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. These stories are part of the series Women Run the West, a public radio collaboration exploring the role of women in Western politics. You can hear more stories at womenrunthewest.org. Now for an outsider's view of Wyoming. Over the last three years, the German embassy has donated grant funds to educate University of Wyoming students about German history. Recently, the German ambassador, Peter Wittig, visited the campus himself. And while he was here, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards sat down with him to talk about what Wyoming can learn from Germany's own cold downturn, as well as the refugee crisis. This transatlantic relationship uh, between Germany and the U.S., and in a wider sense between Europe and the U.S., is more important than ever, because we live in a a world uh, that is in turmoil, really. Uh, The proliferation of crises has been so stunning over, over the years, just think about the Middle East, uh, which is basically in flames, and, and which also is the, the origin of that almost biblical movement of people, the migration of people, the refugees coming to Europe. So uh, th- this transatlantic relationship, which is based, we should never forget that, on shared values of freedom and of human rights, uh, of our philosophy, prosperity, this relationship is more important than ever. Yeah, that that brings me to, you know, Wyoming is one of the only states um, that does not have a a, a refugee resettlement program yet. Mm. Um, And so any thoughts about, you know, the best way forward for for Wyoming as we kind of are exploring how to help out um, with that refugee crisis? Mm. Every country and every single federal state on both sides of the Atlantic has their own context, their own political debates, and their own absorption capacity. In our case, Germany has just been, how can I phrase it, overwhelmed by this wave of refugees. We took in 1.1 million refugees last year alone. That would be an equivalent to the U.S. uh, taking in 4.4 million in one year. So it was a lot of people coming in. First of all, there is a certain humanitarian standard that at least uh, in my case, in our case, we want to comply with. The right to asylum is an important uh, human right, we feel. And then, of course, um, migration and immigration can also be, if it's done the proper way, be a source of enrichment. In our case, uh, we need immigration. We are an aging society. So we are well aware that we have to develop a mindset that allows for immigration and integration. Yeah. Um, You know, I know that Germany has really been working towards kind of moving away from a reliance on the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of uh, Wyoming's coal companies have been going bankrupt over the last year. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you you can give a little bit of background about what that was like as your country was kind of working through this, this sort of situation. We know the Wyoming experience that you are undergoing. Uh, German industrialization was basically powered uh, by hard coal over over decades and decades, not so much by brown coal, but but hard coal. And it turned out in the 60s, imported hard coal became cheaper than the, the nationally produced hard coal. So then through the industry in a crisis, and we started 
uh, to cushion sort of the repercussions that it had in the labor market. And now, in recent decades, in, indeed, we, we have started and initiated a, a rather ambitious program of transformation of our economy uh, from fossil fuels to renewables. That is one of the, I would say, German trademarks in, in the energy policy. Uh, and, and that has so far created a lot of new jobs in that whole green economy uh, segment. Officially, uh, coal subsidies will be phasing out in 2018. So that transformation process in terms of subsidies has concluded. We have a rather elaborate system of a dual vocational training in Germany. So. Half of it is paid by the companies, half of it by public funds. Adult persons who lo lose their job in the mining industry retrain them. And, and, and that is, I think, one of the keys to mitigate the negative uh, social effects when such an industry as coal is declining. Well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your busy day to, to talk to me. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Wrapping up, a visit to a remote archaeology dig and a conversation with UW's musician in residence. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. In recent years, archaeologists have discovered sites in the highest reaches of Wyoming's mountains, where prehistoric people are believed to have lived year-round, higher than some researchers believe North American people could have possibly survived. But a new study in the Wind River Range has found artifacts at the base of a glacier almost 12,000 feet in elevation. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards hiked the 23 miles into this remote archaeology dig to find out what they're learning there. Shake and dump. Yeah. It's late afternoon at the base of Dinwoody Glacier, and its creek is roaring with melted ice nearby. It's been a long day of digging for this crew of archaeology students. We love digging holes. <laughs> love playing in the dirt. It's like playing hide-and-seek with people you never met. <laughs> That's Crystal Reynolds, Morgan Robbins, and Nico Holt, members of a project called the Interdisciplinary Climate Change Expedition, or ICE, sponsored by Central Wyoming College. They point out a faint ring of rocks. It's here they believe that prehistoric people 11,000 years ago might have camped. Reynolds takes notes while the others dig and sift. We'll break it apart and try to put it through the screen to make sure that we don't miss any kind of artifact that might be in here. They haven't found much today, but they have good reason to believe there could be artifacts hidden in these clumps of dirt. On this site right now is we've got a 9,500 year old spear point and right on the other side of the creek a little bit farther down part of this same site We've got 11,500-year-old spear point. That's CWC archaeology professor Todd Gunther. Spear points, he says, ancient people would have used to hunt mammoths and prehistoric bison. He says no one knows exactly why these people made the extraordinary effort to visit these glaciers, since this canyon would have been too narrow for such giant prey. There isn't much to draw people up here in terms of hunting or gathering or foraging, and, and it appears that people are coming up here to see the glaciers, you know, see where the water comes from, where does the water spirit originate. But he says they may not have lived all that far away. Gunther recently discovered lodge pads and artifacts at Burrow Flats, about 18 miles overland. He says there people would have had everything they needed to survive a winter at 11,000 feet. Tons of whitebark pine nuts... There's open flowing water coming out of those springs. There's plenty of wood for fire. You stay in your lodge and your wiki up, and, and we think it would have been easy for people to winter up here. And, Gunther says, there would have been plenty of meat there, too. Last year, his crew found what they believe is the highest bison jump in North America. Ancient people used this cliff to run prey off to kill them. It's probably 3,000 feet higher than the next highest documented buffalo jump in North America. And people say, well, there weren't buffalo up here. But we found a 140-year-old uh, bison horn sheath uh, adjacent to the jump. Gunther says alpine archaeology in North America is a very new science. It was only in 2013 that archaeologists discovered high-rise village in these same mountains, possibly the oldest high-altitude settlement in North America. 
and it altered the way researchers thought about human habitation in the American West. Before then, mountains were mostly overlooked by archaeologists. He says to prove that people could winter at 11,000 feet, he and his son snowshoed into the area last winter. He says the snow was blown off, exposing plenty of grass. It's a place that, that herbivores could graze year-round. And what we saw up there in January was moose, uh, sheep, and we saw dead elk because about two days before we got up there, a pack of wolves had come through and swept through the whole area towards that jump and basically drove the elk, just like we hypothesized that prehistoric human hunters drove the bison. Gunther says he's not sure why it's so hard for others in his field to accept the idea that Native American tribes lived above timberline. Now in Peru, yes. And in Scandinavia, yes. In Siberia, yes. In the Alps, yes. All over the world, people can winter in the mountains, but not our Indians. UW archaeology student Nico Holt agrees there's an unwillingness to rethink those old ideas. Holt is northern Arapaho and eastern Shoshone. When it comes to the theory of whether his ancestors could have wintered up here... That wasn't a revelation at all for us. You know, they called us sheep eaters because <laughs> we lived up here and ate sheep. Well, grandma's side of the family, at least. <laughs> That's his Shoshone side. Archaeologist Todd Gunther says it is still a revelation for many in his field. But next month, he and some of his students will have a chance to defend their theories on an international stage when they present their findings at a glacial archaeology conference in Austria. And he has plans for future digs that could help clear things up even further. You know, there, there's a whole series of glaciers along the Wind River Range. And so I think if we go up more of these canyons, we'll find more archaeology. Hiking out of Dinwoody Canyon a few days later, we stop at Burrow Flats and imagine the prehistoric village that may have once flourished here. As if to prove the point, about a hundred elk migrate by and stand watching us at the pass, just a quarter mile away from what may be the highest bison jump in North America. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. After public universities opened their doors to women, the chance to study music composition opened up as well. But the best-known, highest-paid composers still tend to be men. Composer Libby Larson is one notable exception. She is the eminent musician-in-residence at the University of Wyoming for the 2016-2017 academic year. She joined me to talk about her music and some of the biggest challenges still facing female composers. The biggest enemy is benign neglect. So just not even thinking about you. Here's an example, which I think Jeffrey Kimpton, who's the director of Interlochen Academy. It's a performing arts school for young people. Yes, it is. Yeah. So I was invited to Interlochen uh, several summers ago to kind of just take a look around and see how composing was working there and see what I, whatever I could see. And it was a wonderful summer. And then I had a, had a nice talk with him. And he said, well, what do you think is the biggest challenge here? And I said, invisibility. He just looked so puzzled. But I noticed that well over 50% of the campers were female. And only three pieces the whole summer were written by females. He said, well, what should we do? I said, 55% of your programming should be female composers. I mean, if we were going to look at this in terms of metrics. And nobody even thought of it. People were just sort of like dumbfounded. But it's so logical. If you have students learning to play you know, in, in congregation, and they're female students and they're male students, and we're working on abstract music. It's only logical that the repertoire reflects in greater number than was reflected, you know, the gender makeup of the, of the campers. And that's the issue. It's not uh, gender politics. It's just the not even thinking about it. For women composers, I think that's the biggest issue. How would you describe your style of composition and, and the sound of your music? I was trained as a classical musician, and I write music in order to communicate what it's like to be alive. And so I use classical instruments, flutes, oboes, French horns, any instrument in the orchestra, as my voice. My music sounds like Americans sound, I've been told uh, by people from other countries, that it's unmistakably American. I work from American English, uh, 
which is its own distinct language, and use the vigor and the rhythm of both American English and American energy to inform the music that I write. That was one of the things that I noticed listening to some of your pieces is using English lyrics, especially American English lyrics, as opposed to Latin or another language, which can be very popular with composers um, setting works to to other languages. Yes, right. And especially one of the ones that kind of jumped out to me was Buffalo Gals. Oh, yes. That is not a phrase that would be invented in any other country but ours. We have buffalo and we have gals, right? Uh, and, uh, and woncha, woncha come out tonight, has its own kind of rhythm. Just buffalo gals, woncha come out tonight. Naturally, the melody that arises from that is Buffalo Gals, won't you come out tonight? Just put pitch with it. Buffalo Gals, won't you come out tonight? Come out tonight, come out tonight. Buffalo Gals, won't you come out tonight and dance by the light of the moon? Oh, Buffalo Gals, won't you come out tonight? You've been composing for nearly 50 years. Yes. How do you continue to to create new work, still be inspired, keep that passion alive? That's not hard. I can tell you that because I am curious. There's only been one time in, that I can remember where I didn't have multiple ideas and energies going on in my mind, and that was after uh, 9-11. I was in shock just as we all were, you know, um, and I just kind of went numb. I just, I just couldn't find the hope to match the muse, to make something new and fragile. But all the rest of the time, I always have, it's, it's, it's not even a wellspring, it's, it's a flood of ideas all day long. How did that come back to you after 9-11? It was stages of grief. Um, I got angry, you know, and I wrote a clarinet and piano piece <laughs> in which that anger came out. After that piece, then my interior life found found itself again. You're here at the University of Wyoming this week teaching some master classes, holding a concert. What other events are taking place throughout this year as you are the eminent musician in residence? I'm coming back three more times a, a week of a piece, and there will be many performances of, of my works, meeting with the public, working with the students, working with the faculty, uh, being present at concerts, but not only present, giving verbal program notes from the stage, uh, which is another way of experiencing a concert when the composer's there. You know, um, also I'm going to the cooking stores, the bookstores, the bike stores, <laughs> all the things that I'm curious about and, you know, conducting my life and I'm, I'm going to be in the community. Well, Libby Larson, it was such a pleasure to have you here today. Larson is the eminent musician in residence at the University of Wyoming this year. She is a composer. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear one of our stories again, you can find them at our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. There you can also explore old shows, pitch us stories for future ones, and link to our podcast that's also available on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.